goodbye. That's the sound of the crowd in Richmond, Virginia yesterday, cheering as cranes removed one of the country's largest Confederate monuments. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host. And as always, I'm really glad you've chosen to join us. This 21-foot bronze sculpture of Robert E. Lee had towered over Richmond on Monument Avenue for more than a century. And now it has been cut in half and moved to an undisclosed location. This comes more than a year after the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests that followed. And it's the latest in a much longer effort to remove Confederate monuments around the country. Today, we want to talk about that effort and what it means and what it may not mean for the fight for racial justice in our country. But we also want to talk at length about the history of why these monuments were erected in the first place and what role they play in a much bigger rewriting of American history after the Civil War. It's a history, of course, that is still with us today and a culture of whitewashing that has long spread out of the South and all across our nation. We see it, of course, right here in Michigan. You can drive around just outside Detroit and see Confederate flags in people's yards and on their vehicles. And within the city of Detroit, we have streets and schools and other institutions that are still named after slaveholders and their enablers. Very few baby boomers in Michigan were taught about racial equity in school. Parents in white suburbs have long told their kids to stay away from Detroit, the blackest city in the country, because it's, quote, dangerous. All these things are connected to our troubling history and the ways in which it has been rewritten to maintain white supremacy. And that's what we want to dig into today. That is where we begin the conversation. Of course, as always, we want to hear from you. What's your reaction to the removal of Confederate statues and other monuments to racist figures in American history? I also want to hear about what you learned about these histories when you were a kid. When did you learn about racial justice in school? What did you learn about the Confederacy or America's history of white supremacy? And what do you make of the debate right now about how we teach these things, how we teach these things in K-12, to how we talk about these things in colleges and in grad schools. The argument over critical race theory, which has gotten rather absurd, is one of the flashpoints of this discussion. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Of of course, we also want to hear from you about uh, Michigan and Metro Detroit. What symbols here remind you of this issue What things do you think we ought to be talking about, maybe getting rid of or changing to reflect a better sense of racial justice? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to include you in the program that way. Joining us for this conversation are two people who have pretty deep knowledge of not only what's going on now, 
but of the history of these issues. Dr. Karen L. Cox is a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, and she's author of No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments, and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice. Uh, Dr. Cox, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. I'm happy to be with you today. And also with us is Dr. Michael L. Dickinson. He's an assistant professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, where the Robert E. Lee Monument was removed yesterday. Dr. Dickinson, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So um, uh, I'm going to start with you, Dr. Dickinson, because, as I said, you teach at VCU which is right there in Richmond. Uh, first, I'd like you to describe uh, what it feels like there as this monument comes down. But I, I would also love for you to give us a sense of uh, place there in Richmond around this monument. Richmond is a place that I've been several times and I've seen Monument Avenue. Uh, it's not just that there was a statue of Robert E. Lee there. Uh, this was a, 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 a promenade uh, where lots of Confederate figures were memorialized. Uh, so, so, so talk a little about yesterday and then talk about uh, where this is and what this means in uh, the Capitol there in Virginia. Sure. Um, so I, I think we can say as for those um, viewers who who were able to watch the footage, uh, if you could not be, if they could not be there, um, is that the sense was palpable on the ground uh, yesterday. Uh, we have people um, yelling, singing uh, together collectively as the as the monument came down. Uh, there's a sense of um, community and a, uh, I think a palpable sense of um, a historic moment. Uh, that's uh, a moment of change and a, perhaps a moment of um, a reflection about um, about the possibility of going forward. Um, and uh, to answer your other question, Stephen, about um, the city of Richmond in general, I think you're right. It's not just about the, the Lee Monument and um, Monument Avenue is a, was a massive stand of monuments um, that uh, that are. Uh, we can talk about this a little bit further down the line, perhaps. But they're physically imposing, and they're um, and the grandeur of these monuments speak to um, speak to. Uh, 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 imagined past in many ways uh, that still uh, can be felt in Richmond and I think throughout the South of um, this, this legacy of the Old South and uh, legacy of, um, of uh, slavery that's still there and uh, that's um, under the surface, at the surface, that, um, that uh, also combines with uh, young populations, populations of color who are demanding and, and uh, crying out for uh, doing and, and recognizing um, racial inequities and trying to really think about how to go forward as uh, communities and as a nation. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Cox, I'd love to get uh, your overall reaction to the removal of the Lee Monument yesterday, but also to have you put this in the context of this ongoing conversation uh, argument, maybe, that we're having uh, about these symbols and what to do with them. Uh, removal is one approach. Uh, contextualization, of course, uh, is, is another. Uh, where, where do you place uh, this particular uh, happening in, in, I guess, the, the spectrum of, uh, of these, these debates about what to do with these symbols? Sure. Well, I my reaction, initial reaction is I, I honestly did not think that that monument would come down in my lifetime. 
um, I thought of all the monuments that exist, it would be the last to go. And in many ways, it's one of the first. Um, and because um, that a year ago, things changed in Virginia when the law changed, um, uh, the monument law that protected these these statues and, uh, and allowed for local communities um, to make decisions about, about that. Uh, as you know, the mayor took down most of those along Monument Avenue, but then uh, the the one uh, to Lee was something that was owned uh, by the state of Virginia, and and so it was in a in a lawsuit until recently. And I was one of the historians who signed onto the amicus brief uh, on behalf of the state uh, to allow it to be removed. Um, again, I'm it's it's very historic moment uh, where these monuments are concerned. Um, in terms of what comes next, I mean, I think that's that's a really Big question. Um, we know that of the more than 800 monuments, uh, Confederate monuments uh, that were built, and that's not all that's on the landscape. As we know, there's school names, there's street names, there's there are markers, all sorts of things that saturate the southern landscape um, uh, with Confederate memorials. Um, only um, only about 100 have been removed. That means 700 remain, mm. and so. Um, these, I think for people to understand the issue of Confederate monuments, it's very much, I think it's very important to understand, um, except for some of these larger monuments, that these are local objects. And this is where these decisions uh, are being made or should be made. Um, but what we've seen in, um, in the last few years um, is that um, states, uh, particularly in the South, the, the gerrymandered districts of the state have led to these uh, minority controlled uh, legislatures by the GOP, and they've passed laws uh, that prohibit local communities from removing monuments. Um, what's different about Virginia is that the law changed. Mm. Um, and so, you know, there's possibility in Virginia if um, you know, with the removal of those monuments along Monument Avenue um, to go forward uh, and perhaps within that community um, start with, you know, addressing uh, the real issues that the monuments represent, uh, which is uh, racial inequity, uh, the systemic racism, police brutality, white supremacy, all of those things that are attached to these symbols. Mm. Uh, Dr. Dickinson, uh, I wonder if you can dig a little into the history of these statues there in Richmond and why they were built in the first place. Uh, it's, a, it's a history that I'm not sure uh, a lot of people uh, understand or have even heard. Uh, where did all of this where did all this come from? Sure. Um, and so when we think about the Lee Monument, uh, it's actually the first of clearly many on uh, Miami Avenue, but it's um, it begins production in the uh, late 1800s, actually gets put up in uh, 1890, and uh, from there we see the other monuments being erected. Um, but you ask the question, Stephen, what's at the heart of this? And what we see is beginning with these monuments um, and uh, and other um, other artifacts uh, is the is the growth of what is termed the lost cause narrative. And uh, by that we mean this, uh, this uh, a reshaping and romanticized vision of the Civil War um, that, that re, um, rebrands the Southern motivations for entering the Civil War as things like states' rights 
as things like trying to maintain um, the, the southern uh, southern way of life. Um, and there are, I think that we can say that there are bits of glimmers of truth in that, but uh, sure, states' rights and sure, the uh, maintained southern culture in so much as they maintained slavery and white supremacy. Um, and so really, slavery and white supremacy are at the heart of why uh, the Confederacy secedes um, from the Union in the first place and fights the Civil War. Uh, but really, we have a generation um, of folks in uh, the late 1800s who are trying to reshape and rethink uh, why, the, how do we think about the Confederacy in the South. And uh, this is a deliberate rewriting of history. And so the monument's at the center of, center of that to, uh, to paint, for, in this case, Lee as this uh, noble figure um, of grandeur and renowned, someone who uh, should be looked up to um, very much, uh, both figuratively and literally, um, but couched within that, that lost cause narrative is also, um, uh, um, is also the, the sense that slavery was benign and African Americans were, um, were uh, okay and, and um, they were well taken care of under the status quo of slavery. And so all these things are wrapped up with these monuments and deliberately so, right? Um, I think in many ways the monuments say much more than words can ever say, right? Because um, they, they, they speak these things without, uh, without actually having to, um, to convey them. Um, and so I think for a long time, African Americans in Richmond and throughout the United States have understood that this was, uh, these were structures to white supremacy and they understood the writing on the wall, so to speak. And, um, and uh, they, I think what really changed in this newest generation is that their voices are being heard. Hmm. So, um, of course, Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy and, uh, and its history, of course, is deeply uh, intertwined with this, this, struggle to figure out what to do about the history of the Confederacy. Um, uh, Dr. Dickinson, I wonder if you can talk about what's happened in the last few years that really sends that city in a different direction. What changed in Richmond uh, that that took all of this from, you know, just kind of the wallpaper that, that was uh, up in the community? I mean, there, there, for a long time, these were just kind of accepted uh, symbols of uh, uh, of the city's history and of of the history of the Confederacy and things like that. And now, of course, they are they are flashpoints for uh, debate and and real argument about about what to do. Uh, I, I wonder if there is a, a a deeper narrative about change in Richmond that uh, that is valuable for us to understand here. Sure, um, and I think that that speaks to Dr. Cox's point. Right? What what changed in um, in Richmond was was the law here, and I think part of it has to do with some shifting demographics in uh, in the city. I mean, we have a lot of uh, transplants uh, like myself from from uh, from further north. Uh, that matters. I think we have a younger generation that um, are really active in trying to, um, to impact change. So these are my students um, who are. Who are, uh, who are not taking no for an answer, are not taking wait longer for an answer, and um, are very much active in agitating for, for change. But I also think that what, uh, what we also see, and I think you, you did a, a, a very um, useful job of this, even in the beginning, to highlight the, 
the role of um, or the, the the moment of uh, George Floyd and, and a number of others, Breonna Taylor, and um, this, I don't think it's an accident that that we see this change come about as a um, as a result of that, because I think we're at a moment when uh, when rightfully so um, we're we're pushed and forced um, through social media through groups like Black Lives Matter to really uh, hold a mirror up to some of the, the ways in which we uh, we have ignored uh, systemic racism and uh, systemic inequalities and historical inequities um, that uh, that we've just, um, mainstream society has just, uh, and mainstream white society has just um, seen as more of the status quo, and I think monuments fall into that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they can be seen as the status quo as we just walk past them, but for um, for black populations, um, these are spaces of psychological violence, right? And I think that um, that at, at moments when uh, flashpoint moments when black voices are being heard, right, it it, it produces um, it produces um, fertile ground for potential change. Mm. Uh, Dr. Cox, I want to talk just a little about uh, the arguments that. Taking down these monuments the way that uh, has begun to happen in some places is a way of erasing history as well. There are a lot of people who feel as though this is just the equal and opposite uh, uh, reaction to the placement of these monuments uh, and in glorification of them in in the first place. Uh, and, And I'd love for you to talk about whether removal is uh, is the thing that makes the most sense, uh, rather than trying to contextualize, I guess, uh, these figures and these monuments as part of our history, but perhaps a part that uh, that we're not as proud of as these as these monuments might suggest. Yeah, well, uh, no monument ever taught a history lesson. <laughs> um, um, I am a historian and. If, uh, and there are lots of things in history that have been removed or destroyed or whatever. And, uh, and I can still learn about them through books, by going to the archives, uh, through photographs and postcards, all of which exist around these monuments. Um, and we have to understand, like, also what history, um, if any, is, is um, being removed. Nobody said it's being destroyed. It's being, maybe it's being removed. And these are monuments to to white supremacy, monuments that were erected during the era of Jim Crow. And uh, and and so um, the problem, and I feel, and I've said this several times, that, you know, um, you know the train for uh, contextualization left the station a long time ago. Um, and the reason is, if you think about some of these monuments, imagine, for example, putting... Um, contextual panels around the Lee Monument in Richmond. Hmm. Um, there is, uh, you know, just visually um, that that is, um, there's a disconnect there that's, um, you see that the, the master narrative, so to speak, um, towers over this counter narrative uh, that might appear on a, on a, uh, on a contextual panel. And so, um, uh, and, and that would exist. That would be the case in many places uh, around the South. Even even smaller monuments, there's still tower over the courthouse square in small towns across the uh, courthouses around the region. And so context is is not very valuable. So what what has happened? And and uh, and I think is that is that with removal, it's it's an opportunity for communities to 
rethink their memorial landscape and and to think about the ways in which um, these things, um, like how you want to represent your community. Do you want a Confederate monument to represent your community in the 21st century? And if not, then you have to think through that problem. Hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of, there are communities doing that. Um, here in Charlotte, while we didn't have a, a, a number of monuments, um, we do have things like street names. Um, and so uh, with, you know, the our most recent mayor, who's African-American woman, um, uh, created a legacy commission and uh, to which I was a consultant. And and uh, began the discussion about doing things like changing street names. Um, and so there are ways of doing these things and there are ways of bringing all of the community into a conversation around what happens next. Um, but I don't think that their remaining in place uh, is representative of the communities in which they exist. And, and, um, and so uh, what was interesting about the Lee Monument, of course, was the way in which local community, local activists reinterpreted that monument hmm. and reclaimed the space around that monument. And, and that to me was probably the most powerful reinterpretation that I've seen. And, and, and certainly it's been acknowledged as one of the most powerful pieces of, of uh, protest art in the nation when they began projecting images onto the side of the Lee pedestal. So um, it, it comes to a point where you have you know, you need to have community involvement in, in the in the next steps. But I, I don't see monuments. I, I can't make the decision for every community. Mm -hmm. But I think communities must think about whether these these objects um, are a reflection of who they are in the 21st century. Mm. OK, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation uh, about the removal of the Robert E. Lee monument yesterday in Richmond and about monuments in general, including here in Detroit, Metro Detroit and Michigan. We're going to be joined uh, when we come back by a local historian who's going to talk about our own issues and troubles with this subject. Uh, we want to continue to hear from you as well. Paul, tell us what you think about the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue in Virginia. Do you think that we have some work to do here in Detroit and in Southeast Michigan? Uh, around the idea of bringing a sense of racial justice to who gets a statue, who's a street named after, who gets their name on a school or another institution. Uh, give us a call and let us know how you're thinking through these issues more than a year after the death of George Floyd and the massive Black Lives Matter protests that followed. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour uh, about the removal of the Robert E. Lee Monument in Richmond, Virginia yesterday, uh, the latest development in the conversation, uh, the argument that we are having as a nation over monuments like this, monuments that honor 
Confederate uh, generals or uh, people who were slaveholders or were enablers of slavery uh, in the early uh, parts of our republic. Uh, of course, we have lots of those monuments around the country, and we have things here in Detroit and Metro Detroit that honor uh, people who were either slaveholders or enablers for slaveholders. So the question is, what should we be doing about these things? The murder of George Floyd last year and the Black Lives Matter protests that unfolded as a result, I think, have reframed the way that almost everybody thinks about these things. Uh, and we have started to see reconsiderations of those monuments and those institutions. Uh, the question, I guess, is how far we're willing to go in changing things uh, that are all part of America, that have been part of America for such a long time. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know what you think about taking down monuments, uh, thinking uh, uh, again about public spaces uh, in a way that's different than we have in the past. Uh, do you think that's the right way to even approach this? Or should we be trying to better explain these figures uh, in, in public spaces? Should we be uh, trying to contextualize these monuments rather than just taking them down? Uh, also, give us a call and let us know what you think about the things that we have here in Detroit and Metro Detroit that honor slaveholders or people who were uh, sympathetic to the idea of slaveholding. Uh, there are lots of things that come to mind, uh, streets, schools, other institutions that bear the name of slaveholders here in Metro Detroit. So how should we be talking about these things? Are we talking enough about reconsidering those things? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to include you in the conversation that way. I've got two uh, experts with us already uh, uh, to talk about this. Dr. Carol L. Cox is a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and author of No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice. Also with us is Dr. Michael L. Dickinson. He's an assistant professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, where this Robert E. Lee monument was removed Yesterday, I want to welcome another important voice to the conversation now. Uh, Jamon Jordan is an historian and educator and the owner of Black Scroll Network History and Tours here in Detroit. He is also now on the faculty at my alma mater, the University of Michigan. Jamon, I, I want to start here with you, Jamon. There's plenty of examples of monuments and institutions here in and around Detroit that a lot of people would like to see removed due to their connection to slavery or white supremacy. So i just uh, let you uh, start off with some good examples of things that you think we ought to be thinking about here. Yeah, so of course here in the city of Detroit, there's this long history of, of, of whitewashing of history where um, we don't know the history of some of the people that are honored um, by monuments and street names here in the city of Detroit. And, of course, we have a number of streets. We have a street called Shane, which is named after Alexander Shin, who was a French farm owner, who, of course, was also a slave owner. Hmm. Many of the French ribbon farm owners during that colonial period or during that early French period in the 1700s and early 1800s when the British had taken over Detroit were also slave owners. And so we have streets 
schools and all kinds of places named after them. So the city, I mean, the street chain, of course, Joseph Campall, one of the wealthiest French slave owners in the city of Detroit, um, Louis Deville de Quindere, who named Belle Isle Ile Au Pouchon, which is, of course, Hog Island. So the De Quindares, we call it De Quinder today, of mm-hmm. course, were slave owners in the city of Detroit. And, of course, we have um, uh, the Macomb, who were the largest slave owners in Michigan's history. And so we have both William Macomb and Alexander Macomb. Alexander will leave and go to New York and become the third largest slave owner in New York's history. And his son, Major General Alexander Macomb, who grew up in a slave owner's household. But, of course, by the time he had become an adult, his father... Um, had gone broke, so he was no longer a slave owner because his family had gone into such debt. We have a large monument built in his honor on on Washington Boulevard um, in downtown Detroit, right in front of the Book Cadillac Hotel. Mm. And of course, the well-known story is Lewis Cass. And of course, Lewis Cass has a number of monuments and busts throughout the state of Michigan, but right here in the city of Detroit, there's one in the Detroit Public Library. And of course, Probably the most well-known, most famous school in the city of Detroit is named after Lewis Cass. And Lewis Cass is not only a slave owner, he was an illegal slave owner because as an American, he was prohibited from being a slave owner by the Northwest um, Ordinance, which um, outlawed slavery for Americans. It did not outlaw slavery for the French and British who were already here. But Lewis Cass will illegally practice slavery in the city of Detroit, as well as be the architect, one of the architects, of the Indian removal policy, which we know as the um, Trail of Tears. Mm -hmm. And so Detroit has this dark history or this history that is hidden um, of of really um, major uh, atrocities and and people who were involved in those atrocities, whether it was slavery, whether it's the removal of indigenous people from their land and from their homes. And it's really hidden. It's not taught uh, in schools. Um, and it always takes some pioneering journalist or some pioneering historian or writer to uncover these things. And generally, they get the backlash for uncovering something that we all should have known a long time ago. Mm. So, uh, Jaman, I know you spent a lot of time trying to educate people about uh, these things, this part of our history, and show them, you know, up front the things that uh, that memorialize uh, this 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 awful part of uh, American history. And, you know, I wonder what reaction you get though from people who, as you point out, are just not taught about this thing, this kind of thing. I mean, we don't talk about it very very much in this community. It's not taught in schools, and I, I have to say that even um, in comparison to other communities where they are trying to take down some of these images, we have seemed, we have seemed slow. I mean, we've had a couple things yeah. happen. Uh, Cobo Hall was renamed uh, yeah. largely because uh, Albert Cobo, who was a mayor here in the 1950s, uh, was architect of, uh, of what they called urban renewal, but, uh, right. but really was about uh, whitewashing uh, black parts of the city, but but we haven't really engaged in this. So so I wonder what people say to you when you tell them, "Hey, we have we have as big a problem with this uh, as maybe any community in the country." See, one of the, uh, and thank you for that question because one of the things that Detroit um, suffers from in places like Detroit, New York, Boston, Milwaukee, so places in the north, what they suffer from is this long propaganda story that the South was the bad guys. 
You know, it was slavery was in the South, not in the North. And segregation, Jim Crow, that was a Southern phenomenon, not a national phenomenon, not all over the country. And so because of that propaganda, I mean, even as recent as, as the Green Book movie, which won Oscars, um, in that movie, they only take out the Green Book, which, of course, is a traveling guide to help African-Americans go to places that won't discriminate against them. That, they only take out that Green Book when they go to the South. So when they're in Mississippi, they whip out the Green Book. But they would have needed that Green Book in the city of Detroit. Hmm. They would have needed that Green Book in Indiana. They would have needed that Green Book in New York. In fact, the writer of the Green Book, Victor Green, wrote it about Harlem first before he began writing about other cities and states. And so that's one of the things we suffer from. So when people go on my tours and we go to these sites, what they have, uh, have been victims of, all of us, is they never knew that, number one, there was slavery in Detroit. They never knew that many of these icons in Michigan's history and Detroit's history were involved in slavery or involved in segregation or involved in the removal of black people from their homes and businesses. They don't know these stories. So in some instances, they're angry about the fact that they were never taught this stuff. So they're angry about hearing this story, but they're not angry with me in some cases. Hmm. Some cases they're angry at the fact that they've grown their whole lives and they've never heard these stories, never known who these people were, never really known their own city's history, even though they've lived in the city their whole lives. That becomes a major uh, issue that we have to overcome. That's one of the reasons why we don't have such a push in Detroit uh, to remove a lot of these monuments, because a lot of people don't know. Mm. They don't know what Cass did or who he was. Uh, at least they don't know that part of his history. They don't know who the McCombs were or the DeQuinders or the Campos. They don't know that history, so there's, there's less push to change things when they never have known this other story. Very similar to what happened in Tulsa. What happened in Tulsa, it was not taught that Tulsa massacre, which occurred in 1921, the schools did not teach this. This was a purposeful whitewashing of history so that the people who lived there would not know the horrific thing that happened in their own city just 100 years ago. That's similar to what we see in the city of Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, Jaman Jordan, uh, historian and, edu- and educator and now faculty member uh, at the University of Michigan. It's always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for calling in. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephen. Yeah. Okay, I want to get to some social media uh, comments that we've gotten so far. Uh, Yolanda on Twitter says, uh, as we take down, let us put up. There are very few monuments to the Union victory in the southern landscape, especially to the African-American soldiers. Let us focus on correcting that emptiness now. When there is a memorial at Fort Pillow, it will signal progress. Ed on Twitter says, where is the monument for the families of Black Bottom? Black Bottom, of course, was the neighborhood here in Detroit, uh, inhabited by African-Americans that was uh, plundered under, really, uh, by uh, the highway I-375 and the development of uh, the Lafayette Park neighborhood uh, next to it. Uh, let's get to the phones uh, and uh, hear a little more from our listeners. Uh, Rhonda in Ypsilanti. Rhonda, what's on your mind? Um, hi, good morning, Stephen. I, I really appreciate this conversation. Mm-hmm. I think that it is important that these monuments be removed, um, but I don't, from public spaces, but I don't think they should be hidden away because I think that, you know, as Brother Germain was talking about, you know, this whitewashing that happens creates this opportunity for people to claim that slavery and that history wasn't as horrific as it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we hear people talking about, 
oh, well, it wasn't that bad or, you know, it was a choice or whatever. And it's, it's, they should be removed because you do not see monuments to Nazi Germany um, around, you know, Austria and France and things like that. So they should definitely be removed. But I think they should be, like, put in a museum so that it's a place where people can go and be reminded of what was real, what happened, hmm. so that we never forget. You know, that, 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 that needs to be preserved, but not in your face every day while you're driving down the street. Hi, Rhonda, I really appreciate the call and the really thoughtful uh, approach you're taking to this, uh, to this subject. Uh, Dr. Dickinson, um, we heard Rhonda talk about the contextualization there, but we also uh, heard from Yolanda on Twitter who says maybe part of the contextualization is putting up more monuments that commemorate the, the Union victory. Uh, we've heard Dr. Cox, of course, talk about uh, the, the limitations of uh, monuments to kind of teach us history. I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. But I wonder what you make of, of these kinds of suggestions. Is this another way we ought to be uh, thinking this through and, and, and coming up with a way to make all of this look more accurate and true? Certainly, um, and I, I thank you for I thank your view, uh, your listeners. Sorry for those comments and, and that those questions, uh, because I think they're they're really onto something, right? Especially when we think about the the very definition of a monument, right? That um, that the purpose of a monument is to commemorate a figure, and by commemorate, we're we're essentially saying celebrate and have so respect for, it. and and in so much that um, that that is how we uh, should think about monuments um, and. Um, and these figures, right? Uh, I think we need to ask ourselves whether these figures, um, whether they they embody the ideals and values to which uh, communities and individuals um, in those communities should aspire to. And so I think Rhonda's on. She's uh, certainly makes a useful point that um, that it matters that these uh, monuments are in public spaces as sort of exalted figures versus. Um, um, making sure that their history is remembered, right, in, in appropriate spaces such as museums, where they, uh, where we can have that discussion, but where um, where uh, we are, uh, we are not glorifying them, right. And so I think that matters, and I think it also matters. I mean, um, one of your one of your listeners mentioned this as well as uh, Jaman, this this idea that that um, we can say that there are far more memorials and far more uh, monuments to. Uh, to individuals uh, who uh, worked to uphold slavery and were slaveholders themselves, and there are to those who tried to end slavery. I think that's a problem, right? I think that that's that's an, that's a really important consideration about uh, when we think about the uh, what we're what we're uh, communicating to our citizens and what we're communicating to um, our children. Um, and so, so they make very very thoughtful points, and they I think they help us to really think about um, going forward. Mm. Okay, uh, Dr. Karen Cox and Dr. Michael Dickinson, it was really great to have both of you here for this conversation. Really wonderful perspective that both of you brought to it. Thank you so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get a preview of a public forum on aging and caregiving in America, something that impacts all of us regardless of our age. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.